Coming up, the love hormone oxytocin makes brain networks less noisy. You could liken this to the operation at the circuit level of noise cancellation earphones. And the NASA engineers who think of the Mars rovers as family. What do you do when somebody dies? Well, you have a wake, you have a funeral, and robots are no different. Plus, the genome sequence of some famous cells raises issues of genetic privacy, and we find uses for materials with clever properties. This is The Nature Podcast. I'm Thea Cunningham. And I'm Kerry Smith. It's the news chat first this week and nature has been following the latest developments in a long-running story. In 1951 in Baltimore, Maryland, a woman named Henrietta Lacks was killed by an aggressive cervical tumour. Without the family's knowledge or permission, scientists took cells from the tumour and transformed them into a cell line now called HeLa. This line is still grown in labs all over the world. The next step, perhaps, was a logical one for scientists. Earlier this year, researchers published a HeLa genome sequence, again without talking to the Lacks family. Such a sequence might in principle contain genetic information relevant to Henrietta's living relatives. Finally, in the last few months, the director of the National Institutes of Health in the US, Francis Collins, has taken steps to make up for the decades where the Lacks family were left out of the loop. We'll hear from him in just a minute, but first to reporter Ewan Calloway, who's joined me in the studio and who's been following this story exclusively for Nature. Ewan, first of all, just give us a primer on these HeLa cells. Right. HeLa cells were the first human cell line to grow well in the lab. Before that, cells would divide a few times or a few dozen times and then kick out. And they've contributed to tons and tons of research, 75,000 papers, uh, last I checked. And we're talking about important research, the development of a polio vaccine, several Nobel Prizes. But despite that, the Lacks family haven't been aware, as time has gone on, perhaps, of, of some of these uses, some of this research. What's prompted the NIH, Francis Collins's institute, to involve the family now in discussions? The story kind of goes back to earlier this year when researchers did the very sensible thing to them of sequencing the genome of HeLa cells. I mean, it's a, it is the most common uh, cell line in their freezers, and uh, having, having that genome would really help them with a lot of their studies, so it seems sensible. The genome was released in, in about March, and within, with, within a week or two, the Lacks family expressed their displeasure through a woman named Rebecca Sklute, who spent a decade kind of chronicling their story in a book called The Immortal Life of Henrietta Lacks. Uh, the researchers, this is, a, this is a German group, responded by taking down the genomic data and kind of, you know, working towards a, a solution. And, and that's been ongoing for the last few months. Francis Collins's part in all of this, of course, is now to involve the Lacks family in some talks about uh, their genetic data, its privacy. Right, right. So what happened after, after the researchers pulled their data was that Francis Collins learned that another group, this time funded by his agency, was also working on their own HeLa genome sequence, and Nature was about to publish that. Uh, that, that got put on hold, and then Francis Collins made a number of trips uh, to Baltimore, Maryland, uh, where the Lacks, many of members of the Lacks family live, and just sat down with them. Now let's hear from Francis Collins, whom you spoke to, you in last month, on what the talks actually involved. The first two meetings, a lot of it was just explaining what had happened. Genome was not necessarily a familiar word. Uh, We also, by the time we got to the second and certainly the third meeting, um, talked about 
what the realistic opportunities were at this point as far as keeping that sequence completely out of view. Uh, one option would be to go ahead and deposit this in a completely open access model. Second option would be to utilize a mechanism which we have been using in other genomes uh, by basically establishing a data access committee that would review requests for access to the information. And the third option would be, and we put this on the table, uh, that basically the sequence should not be released. So for the Lax family, of course, Francis Collins there speaking about the talks, there was a lot of information to absorb. And here's Henrietta's granddaughter, who you and also interviewed for the piece, Jerry Lax, on the experience. I felt like I was taking a biology, like, 101. But it was, I guess, you know, learning about um, sequencing, just sequencing in general, learning about um, more information about our grandmother. So you and the, the main result of these talks is that the data will be available with some caveats. Right. The agreement that the Lacks family made with the NIH was that the data, the genome data, wouldn't just be out there for anybody to download. Researchers could get it just by filing a simple uh, request to a data access committee that's going to include members of the Lacks family. And if, if they're using it for legitimate biomedical research and they agree not to seek out and contact the Lacks family, they're free to use it. The Lax family members told me that you know that they were much happier with that sort of agreement because it involved them in you know in making decisions about the cell line that their mother and grandmother gave to the research community. They, they, they saw it as a way of being involved finally after six decades of not being involved, not being in the know. And I think you know NIH respected their wishes, and researchers will have to as well. Yeah, so, so on that point, what, what are the broader lessons here for researchers working with patients or cell lines? Well, the rules have, have vastly improved. Um, research participants generally have to give informed consent to participate in research. But in many states in the United States, our researchers don't need, need permission to use discarded tissues to establish cell lines like you know, like HeLa, so long as they keep patients anonymous. And I think there's a big push going on right now to say, hold on, we should be asking for the permission for all uses for research, for tissues, for genomes, etc., and protect their anonymity and their privacy. You mentioned before, you and that the story of the HeLa cells, that kind of situation may not arise today in that form. Francis Collins also had some thoughts when you spoke to him on what a special situation this is. This is pretty unique. This has all wrapped in it science, uh, scientific history, ethical concerns, bringing together people of very different cultures, a family with all of the complications that families have, but a remarkable family. And I really want the chance uh, when we get that uh, to express to the family how impressed I have been with their ability to take on a situation of this sort that they could have basically just decided to say no and railed against the whole thing, but instead uh, to really deeply engage uh, in what this means, not just for them, but for the whole world, and to do so in a thoughtful way that has resulted, I think, in a really remarkable outcome. So all that remains is to thank Ewan Calloway for coming in. Thanks, Ewan. That was Francis Collins that you heard. But perhaps the final word should go to Henrietta's granddaughter, Jerry Lax. I was just thinking, you know, glad that my grandmother is continuing to advance science. And, you know, some people may not agree with maybe the decisions that are being made with this healer sequencing. When you look at it, you know, we can't please everybody. So I'm just hoping that 
people will understand, you know, we're just trying to benefit everybody, you know, make sure that the family is comfortable with what's going on and make sure the researchers are comfortable with what's going on. And this, that's not only the healer sequencing, it's just anybody who participates in research. Coming up in the research highlights, zebra navigation and bacterial alter egos. And we'll be finding out how the hormone oxytocin affects the brain. But first, metamaterials are unusual beasts, artificially created to do things that no normal material can. Noah Baker went to live in a metamaterial world. Invisibility cloaks as an idea are pretty cool, right? And thanks to metamaterials, they could just be possible. Metamaterials are artificial arrays of tiny elements designed to bend, scatter and transmit waves, like light, in ways that normal materials can't. People have been working on metamaterials and invisibility cloaks for a decade, but are there really metamaterial devices just around the corner? I spoke to Richard Johnston, a material scientist currently working with the Nature News team, and started with the big question, are we really going to have invisibility cloaks? Well, it depends what you're trying to be invisible from. So if we're talking about light, um, that's got a certain wavelength. Microwaves have another wavelength and radio waves a different wavelength again. And so when you think of the classic Harry Potter invisibility cloak, that's working on visible light. And that's got a very small wavelength. And so if we're talking about metamaterials as a mechanism for diverting light, uh, visible light, then probably not in the form that Harry Potter used that cloak. So what makes metamaterials meta? So metamaterials, unlike um, regular materials from nature, they gain their properties from their structure rather than their chemical composition. So they're made up of very, very small units, um, which can be uh, nanometer sized, and they give the material its properties. What can we do with metamaterials? What's the advantage of them? So scientists are working on metamaterials for a number of um, applications. And we talked about the invisibility cloak as this um, unobtainable thing, but actually an invisibility cloak is quite useful when you consider the other wavelengths. So scientists have um, developed invisibility cloaks that will hide certain objects from microwaves and from radio waves, which have a much longer wavelength than visible light. And so they could have um, applications in military, so hiding things from radar. Exciting possibilities, but could these materials do more than just hide things? I asked David Smith, who works on metamaterials at Duke University in the U.S. One of the things that we're working on now at Duke is a method of using metamaterials to help imaging. So instead of making things invisible, we're trying to see, uh, and in a particular case, we're trying to see millimeter waves or uh, uh, radio frequency waves. And this is useful because radio waves can penetrate things like clothing and and different types of, of obstacles to see inside things. And this is a type of application you can imagine that uh, could be useful for security screening. And it turns out that metamaterials are just a a fairly good match for some modern concepts of imaging. This is something that you could use in the future for imaging purposes, but there are metamaterial applications which are very soon to be commercialized. That's right. There are very immediate uh, uh, application areas. One of those is being pursued by a company called Chimeta, and there the application is to create uh, something that would act like an antenna dish, but it's not an antenna dish, it's just a flat panel, uh, metamaterial panel, 
uh, that can track, in this case, satellites, but could be used in a, in a variety of uh, communications scenarios. This uh, structure could be much lighter weight, much lower power draw, and uh, much lower profile than these bulky satellite dishes that are currently used. In early terms, it's probably going to be for uh, satellite communication to commercial planes. For example, if you want internet on your transatlantic flight, you would use a panel like this, uh, currently replacing what's, what's there, and you would have uh, better access. Lightweight and thin, this next-generation antenna is perfect for planes, but the same technology could be used on the ground, bringing super-fast internet connections to slimmer smartphones. Smith is such a believer in the potential of metamaterials that alongside his research, he's been working with a company called Intellectual Ventures to commercialise them. Metamaterials research has gone on for, for uh, over a decade now, at some point, uh, things were maturing uh, to the level that uh, I felt like we needed to get involved as researchers in the effort to transition these concepts into commercial uh, domain. And with a little bit of uh, pairing up what we do in the lab with what uh, is, is needed in the market, we were able to identify a number of areas where metamaterials could make a difference. Satellite communications was the first thing that came out. Uh, imaging is, is not far behind. I think it's going to be a, a reality very quickly. And there's a number of other opportunities that we're very excited about and, and pursuing. Broadband on planes is cool, but it's hardly an invisibility cloak. Is a next-generation antenna really something to be excited about? From my point of view, whether I'm a material scientist or just a consumer, I'd like to have these products come to market very soon because the potential for them, particularly in more consumer-based products like smartphones, I think as a scientist or a consumer, I'd be excited about that development. This technology really is a competitor to much more expensive techniques, and you can see this in a lot of different scenarios, and I think the cell phone one is absolutely one where... Uh, this technology could be used and, and will make a difference. David Smith and before him Richard Johnston talking to Noah Baker. Read more about metamaterials and how they could be making their way into your homes and pockets in the near future in a feature at nature.com news. Soon we'll be hearing from a sociologist of science who spent time gauging the personalities of the Mars rovers. But it's time now for the research highlights, read by Charlotte Stoddart. Bacteria that can cause pneumonia often don't. They live harmlessly in the noses or throats of up to 15% of healthy adults. So what triggers these bacteria to turn nasty? The answer, it seems, is the flu. Researchers in New York State grew bacteria on top of human cells of the type which normally line airways. Then they exposed the cells to the flu virus and mimicked flu-like conditions such as a fever. This caused the bacteria to disperse to usually bug-free sites, causing inflammation. So signals like raised body temperature and fever could be helping to transform the bacteria into its destructive alter ego. Find that study in mBio. Want to know the weather forecast? Try asking a zebra. Researchers from the UK working in Botswana fitted seven adult zebras with tracking collars. The animals were about to migrate at the start of the rainy season. The team compared their movement with satellite data on rainfall and plant growth. The zebras used initial weather conditions as a clue to the amount of food and water at their destination. If the rainfall was unseasonably late, the zebras would linger or reverse their direction. Zebras' forecasting skills might help them to adjust to climate change. 
Find that paper in the Journal of Geophysical Research, Biogeosciences. Oxytocin is one of those hormones that gets a lot of press coverage, probably because of its appealing pseudonym as the love hormone. It's known to be important during and after childbirth, and more recently scientists linked it to social behaviours. Three decades ago, a team in Switzerland discovered that oxytocin triggers so-called inhibitory neurons in a bit of the brain called the hippocampus. That dulls the overall noise in the circuit. Richard Chen at New York University and his team were interested in how this action relates to the flow of information through this region of the brain and the implications for our social lives. They found that oxytocin does decrease the overall background noise, which can clarify the message itself. Without this boost, social information can be hard to process. Loved up Jeff Marsh returned to the podcast studio to call Richard Chen. Oxytocin, the so-called love hormone, is really well heard of. Why don't you tell me what kind of behaviours it's thought to have an influence on? The behaviours that it most famously modifies have to do with social behaviour and parental bonding. Some elegant work in uh, small rodents called voles uh, characterised that uh, oxytocin and a related neuropeptide uh, are involved in determining uh, how animals interact with each other. And so it's come to be known as either a social hormone or a love hormone. So the presence of this hormone is associated with lots of these kind of social behaviours and also deficiencies in the levels of oxytocin are associated with diseases like autism. That's right, both uh, in terms of the level of oxytocin found in the bloodstream of kids with autism and also in some cases of autism there's a genetic link to a defect in the receptor for oxytocin. So what part of the brain is this working in? Where were you looking at? We were looking in the hippocampus uh, which is pretty well known for its involvement in aspects of uh, learning and memory. So you were looking specifically at the flow of information into this region? Uh, Through this region information that we artificially studied by stimulating nerve pathways uh, within the hippocampus, looking at flow of information from point A to point B. But you mentioned at the beginning there that oxytocin's involved in inhibition. That sounds like stopping information from flowing. Yes, and one type of information that you might want to stop flowing is the spontaneous chattering of nerve cells. Nerve cells are sort of poised near the threshold to fire, and they spontaneously fire. That's part of their uh, normal working mode of operation. But oxytocin tends to quiet that down, uh, more or less like someone putting their hand on a vibrating drum. And that noise is quieted down by the oxytocin turning on inhibitory neurons. So it was the mechanism by which oxytocin kind of purifies these signals that you were interested in? Yes, we were curious to see not only what would happen to the background chatter, but also what would happen if the hippocampus and the microcircuits in it were called upon to actually pass a signal. We found in a rather striking and intriguing way that not only was the background noise decreased, but the ability to transmit a signal was dramatically increased. And that combination is called uh, an improvement in the signal-to-noise ratio. 
You could liken this to the operation at the circuit level of noise cancellation earphones. Uh, you flip the earphones to the on position, and not only does the background noise of the cabin and all the conversations around you go down, but the sound of the music that you want to hear goes up. How does that then relate to diseases like autism? Well, an honest answer is that we don't completely know. We would like to think that circuit difficulties at the level of the hippocampus or indeed other regions of the brain play into what is going on in the brain of an autistic individual. Would it be fair to say then that achieving some of the normal social behaviours in an autistic brain might be akin to trying to understand the conversation on a noisy aeroplane without these headphones? We don't know that for sure, uh, but we think that something like that is happening. And does this make you optimistic then about our ability to treat these diseases? I mean, can we go in and just put more oxytocin in this region of the brain? We don't think it's going to be that simple. First of all, uh, there's a big diversity uh, in the autism spectrum of different reasons why individuals may have the disease. And it could turn out that there are subtypes of individuals, some of whom will respond and some who won't. The jury is still out on studies on the effects of intranasal oxytocin. Now, it strikes me that increasing the signal-to-noise ratio would be useful in all sorts of parts of the brain. Is it specific to this locality? We don't know that. We focused on the hippocampus because the circuitry there is far better characterized than in any other region of the brain. So this would be the place to start. There's no reason for us to suspect that similar things wouldn't hold in other regions of the brain where inhibitory neurons have oxytocin receptors on them. That was Richard Chen at NYU. All the content we've talked about this week, including that paper, can be found at nature.com nature. Finally this week, it's time to get to know the Mars rovers a little better. This week is a year since the Mars Curiosity rover touched down on the Red Planet and started prowling around exploring its surroundings. Those of us in this line of work have come to find the rover quite endearing. I follow its Twitter feed. My colleagues get excited when it releases new pictures or scoops up dust samples. Clever little robot. But how do the engineers who work on such projects interact with their robots, albeit from a distance? And what does that tell you about the missions themselves? That's what interests Janet Vertessi. She's a sociologist of science at Princeton University in New Jersey, and she spent years immersed in NASA's rover projects. Janet, welcome to The Nature Podcast. Thank you so much. Now, first of all, since it's Curiosity's landing anniversary, let's begin with that, or should I say him? Absolutely. Curiosity landed on Mars exactly a year ago. It's been a project that was in development for several years in advance, and it's the latest in the line of uh, a series of NASA robotic space exploration missions to Mars, and of course it follows hot on the heels of uh, the Spirit and Opportunity rovers. Um, It's not entirely clear to me still whether Curiosity is a him or her. It's a little bit divided behind the scenes. And certainly um, when they talk to the public audience, they often describe it as a her. But it's likely that the people who actually work with the robot do have a very clear sense of its gender, its character, and perhaps even its social class. What is its, its personality? 
Curiosity is a very big robot. It's a very beefy robot. They make it look very pretty in the press releases and quite white and, and charming in the press releases. But when you come face to face with it, it's actually a sizable vehicle. It's the size of a small SUV carrying so much equipment. And it really has to be extremely strong to carry that. So I would expect that those kinds of aspects of the personality of the robot sort of carry over as people are working with it. Uh, now, Curiosity's predecessors, mm -hmm. uh, Spirit and Opportunity, they've been your main project, kind of researching a, a biography, if you like, of these rovers and of the teams that control them. How are they talking about these rovers, Spirit and Opportunity, these identical twins? Well, it's very interesting because the robot's personality, some of it is said to arrive from just that's how they were born, that they were just, they're just quite different, even though they're identical twins and mechanically they're, they're completely identical. You know, the screws are in exactly the same place. The wires are in the same place. But uh, Spirit is a little bit more, you know, sort of gutsy and hard-nosed and a little bit more difficult sometimes, can be, you know, challenging to work with. Uh, whereas Opportunity, they describe as, as being born with a silver spoon in its mouth. You know, she's the one who got to Mars, and as soon as she opened her eyes, there was evidence of water all around her. And so she never really, you know, one of those, she never had to work a hard day in her life. But the kinds of stories that are told about the robots arise on the one hand from this is how they always have been, and, and on the other hand from this is the story or the narrative of their experience on Mars. And what's the function of that? Why would a team of scientists very rational beings, as most NASA engineers, I'm sure, are. Why would they do this? Why would they create those narratives? What it does is builds and reinforces an already very intimate relationship that these people have with their robots. So to that extent, it's not only a reflection of that connection, but I think it also reinforces and enables that connection. And I would argue that the better they come to know that robot, the more intimate and embodied relationship they have, the better the science can be. But does it hinder it at any point? I mean, Spirit, now defunct, um, RIP. Unfortunately, it passed away. <laughs> how, did they, how did they deal with that? That must have been a real blow. Oh, the death of Spirit was actually a long time coming. The robot was stuck. And what do you do when somebody dies? Well, you have a wake. You have a funeral. And robots are no different, um, especially these robots that people have worked with and cared for for 10 years, 20 years, 30 years in some cases. And it's not just a way of saying goodbye to the robot, but it's also a way of saying goodbye to the team. It sounds as if it's not entirely surprising that there is anthropomorphism of these robots if you're working, if you're thinking about them 24-7. But it does sound like perhaps in this case, um, with Spirit's demise, it was a bit of a hindrance that they were so attached because, you know, it takes a lot of funding on NASA's part to keep looking, keep listening for this robot when actually it's just died. But it's also been um, one of the reasons why they would never have given up on the robot. I mean, so the robot was supposed to last for 90 days, and it died seven years into its mission. Because of that connection, because of that intimacy with the robot, because of that continued relationship with the robot, the team pushed the robot to new limits and to new, uh, new possibilities. I think the other thing that's important to note is that the projection of anthropomorphism with the robots doesn't only go one way. I also noticed that members of the team became what I would call technomorphic as well, that they started to take on attributes of the robots. They would use their arm like the robotic arm of the vehicle as well, and they would sort of swing it out at an awkward angle. And I think that's what really enabled them to do their job well. It wasn't just that they loved these vehicles and the vehicles sort of had a personality for them, but also that they really understood the robots in their own bodies and in their own experiences on Earth as well. 
That was Janet Vertessi on NASA engineers and their favourite robots. More information on her projects at janet.vertessi.com and you can follow Curiosity on Twitter at Mars Curiosity. Check out the news site for more on the Healer story we featured at the top of the show and other popular stories this week, including the milk tolerance feature from last week's show. That's it for this week. Next time, how trustworthy are eyewitness accounts, really? I'm Kerry Smith. And I'm Thea Cunningham. 